your average podcast. It's not a political show. It's a podcast about church culture and the culture at large, viewed through the lens of Scripture. It's the Richards Revelations podcast with Scott Richards. Here's your host, Scott Richards. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Scott Richards. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we try to live our lives just a little bit better, as we look at things through the lens of Scripture and then apply it to our life. I want to encourage you to share these podcasts with others. And if you're liking these podcasts, go ahead and hit the like icon and subscribe. If you'd like to participate in the ongoing production of this podcast, there's information below on how you can donate, if you're so inclined. Once again, I am truly thankful that you take the time to listen to these podcasts. Before we get into today's subject, I want to let you know that you can follow us on our Facebook page, Richard's Revelations Podcast, and most other social media platforms, including YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and so forth, under my name, Scott Richards. If you want to make it easier, try Scott Allen Richards. Allen spelt A-L-A-N. This week, we're going to talk about the origin of our translations of the Bible, and in future podcasts, we'll talk more in depth about some translations And I use the word translations loosely because some of the ones that we're going to talk about, I wouldn't consider them an authentic translation of the Bible, more like a book that someone put together and is passing off as a Bible. So we'll get into those, but today we're just going to talk about what I would call the foundation, where we got our translations, how we got the Bible. And this is what I would call a simple explanation of the tree, as it were, of translations. The Bible was originally written. In Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a tiny bit of Aramaic here and there. The oldest complete copy of this part of the Bible in the original Hebrew is called Masoretic Text. And generally speaking, this is what the Bible translators used when translating the Old Testament. However, the New Testament, there are many different Greek manuscripts available that scholars can use. Generally, these fall into three main categories. First are the Western manuscripts, which go back to the early days of the church in Rome. These were used to create the Vulgate, which is the Latin version of the Bible that was used by the Catholic Church for many centuries. Second, there are the Byzantine manuscripts, also known as the majority text. Most of these manuscripts were created by the Eastern Church, when Constantinople was the capital of the Roman Empire, and in 1516, they were used to create a Greek version of the New Testament known as Tectus Receptus. Finally, there are Alexandrian manuscripts, also known as the Neutral Text. These include some manuscripts that were found quite recently, like within a hundred years or so. Genuinely, these manuscripts are also the oldest, and therefore they are considered to be the most reliable. They form the basis of the Novin Testamentum Greece, also known as the Nestel Aland text which is the Greek text that most scholars use today. Now let's look at some of the earliest attempts to translate the Bible into English. The first major attempt was made by a priest named John Wycliffe. Some pronounce him as Wycliffe. I've always known him to be John Wycliffe. And he relied entirely on the Latin Vulgate. He died before his translation was done, but some of his colleagues finished it for him around 1390. But one thing about the Wycliffe's Bible is that it was actually written in Middle English not modern English, so it actually makes for pretty difficult reading. The first Bible to be written in modern English was the Tyndale Bible, translated by William Tyndale, using both the Vulgate as well as a bit of the original Hebrew and Greek. Tyndale was one of the early leaders 
of the Protestant Reformation, and this came through in his work, which led to his execution for heresy in 1536. Because he died early, he wasn't able to finish the complete Bible. So the Tyndale Bible actually only includes the New Testament, the Pentateuch, and the Book of Jonah. Just a few short years later, after ordering the execution of William Tyndale, King Henry V, the sixth of England authorized the Great Bible, which was based mostly on the Tyndale Bible, with the rest of the Old Testament being finished by a priest named Miles Coverdale. It was the first English Bible to be used in the church services of the Church of England. However, at this point, it was too expensive for the average person to own a book the size of the Bible. That all changed with the publication of the Geneva Bible in 1560. Its New Testament was based on the Textus Receptus rather than the Vulgate. Textus Receptus was a Greek New Testament created a few decades earlier by the Dutch philosopher Erasmus, using all of the best Byzantine manuscripts available to him at the time. Secondly, the Geneva Bible was created by Calvinists and was Protestant. Third, it was the first English Bible to use the chapter and verse divisions that we still use to this day. And fourth, it was mass-produced and therefore was the first Bible to end up in the hands of average English-speaking people. However, the Anglican bishops at the time were not happy about the Geneva Bible as they were worried that it would undermine their authority. Back in early church history, people relied on only the teaching from the pulpits. And so, unfortunately, they could get away with things because very few people had a copy themselves to check what was being said with the Bible. Hence, the concern about their authority being weakened because they no longer could just have people solely relying on what they said. They therefore produced the Bishop's Bible just a few years later. The Bishop's Bible was authorized by Queen Elizabeth I. So England so England ended up with a situation in which the Bishop's Bible was the one being read from the pulpit, but the Geneva Bible was the one being read in the pews. In 1611, a new translation was authorized. It was the King James Version, also known as the Authorized Version. Interesting enough, people have contributed to King James VI, but it wasn't King James VI, because James Charles Stuart, who once was King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England, and it was at that point as the King of England that he authorized the new translation of the Bible, the King James Version. It was the third Bible to be authorized by an English monarch, and it was based on both the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible. The KJV, as it's now known, is still one of the best-selling Bible translations to this day. Its iconic language has impacted the English language more than any other book ever published. In fact, it is estimated that over 250 English idioms can be traced directly back to phrases first used in the King James Bible. I also want to mention another Bible that was created around the same time as a King James, the Douay-Rheims Bible. The Douay-Rheims was produced by the Catholic Church and as such, was based on the Vulgate. The first and only authorized revision of the King James Version was the English Revised Version, often simply referred to as the RV, or Revised Version. It came out of the UK, 
1885, and was quickly followed by the American Standard Version in the U.S. in 1901. Now, these two new translations differ from the King James Version in a very important way. In the centuries that followed the publication of the King James, many new manuscripts were found. This allowed scholars to create what's called a critical version of the Greek New Testament, one that combined all the available manuscripts together, but in particular relied heavily on the Alexandrian text type, which represents the oldest and most accurate translation. So the revised version and everything that comes after it used the new critical text instead of Textus Receptus. Nowadays, the critical text comes in the form of the Nestel Allen's Nova Testamentum Greece, which is also sometimes referred to as the UBS text, which stands for the United Bible Society. After the American Standard Version, the tree splits in a few different directions. We get the RSV, the NASB, and the Living Bible, all of which were based directly on the American Standard Version. The RSV, or Revised Standard Version, which dates back to the 1950s, this translation stands out because it was the first ecumenical translation. Ecumenical means that it was produced by scholars representing several different denominations. In this case, there were Protestants, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, and even a Jewish rabbi. It was also the first English Bible to get rid of most of the these and thous. However, the RSV ended up being controversial, mostly because of how it translated Isaiah 7.14. In the previous version, this verse read, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And of course, the verse goes on from there. The RSV changed this verse to say, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. This is the part that led to the creation of the NASB, the New American Standard. The NASB mostly stands out because it's generally considered to be the most literal translation of the Bible available in English. A literal translation is basically a word-for-word translation with just a little bit of arranging here and there so that the text is readable. All of the translators, all of the translations that we've looked at so far have been literal, but the NASB is even more literal. The Living Bible is the complete opposite. In fact, it's not a translation at all. Rather, it's a paraphrased, and in this case, it was done by just one man, Kenneth Taylor. However, it made the Bible super easy to read, and therefore people really liked it. Now, popping back to the RSV, for just a bit, the Revised Standard Version, was replaced in 1989 by a new Revised Standard Version. Both of these are published by the National Council of Churches, which is the umbrella of the organization that represents most of the mainline denominations in the United States. These days, people basically divide churches into two categories, mainline and evangelical. Generally speaking, mainline churches are the more liberal ones like the United Methodists or the Episcopalians, and there's many others. We're not going to get into all of them, but that's just a, a couple there in reference that fit into the liberal thinking and liberal theology under the mainline churches. Whereas evangelicals are more conservative ones, like Baptists, Pentecostals, or non-denominationals, etc. Many fit into there, but they're ones that have a more conservative view. So, you get the mainline and evangelical. To this day, the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, is a translation that is preferred by most of the mainline Christians, as well as academics. 
one of the main differences between the RSV and the NRSV is that the NRSV is gender neutral. So as you're going through it, places where it normally would be specific and say male, they change a lot of these to be person, persons, whatever, to make it non-gender. Now, in some places in the Bible, and I've done this myself when I'm teaching, if there's a place that the word man is used, but in the context it's meaning mankind, it means it refers to both, then I will mention that in that. But there are places in the Bible that is specifically male that shouldn't be translated to people or to a non-gender status statement. Like in Genesis, God created man, Adam, and then he created woman, Eve. Those are two distinctively different people with two separate different biologies. One's a man, one's a woman. This translation throughout many places in it will make it gender neutral, as I said. Now, the NRSV was recently updated. The latest version, known as the NRSV Updated Edition, which goes by the NRSV-UV. Now, the updated version has once again created a bit more controversy, this time over 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. In the New American Standard Bible, it says that neither effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. However, in the updated NRSV, it says, neither male prostitutes nor men who engage in illicit sex will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this removes any mention of homosexuality in the text so that it makes it easier to kind of pretend like God wasn't speaking to that. So they basically changed the whole meaning. And that's a complete different meaning. Being a homosexual is not the same thing as a male prostitute. A male prostitute could be doing anything with anybody. Basically, you're being paid for sex. Homosexuals, it doesn't necessarily mean they're out there selling their body. Some do, but that's not a definition of that. And so in this case, this is nowhere near a word for word or even a phrase by phrase or a thought for thought. It gets somewhere in the ballpark speaking about sexual deviance, but it leaves out critical information. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that because we're not going to dive into all of these today, but that's a reason why the more liberal churches, mainline churches, like that version. Now let's go from the NRSV to the translation preferred by evangelicals. The three most popular are the NIV, the ESV, and the NLT. Since its publication in 1978, the NIV, or the New International Version, has pretty much remained in the top spot as best-selling Bible in America. Unlike everything we've looked at so far, the NIV translators started from scratch and didn't rely on any previous translations. They also used a translation philosophy known as dynamic equivalence, meaning that instead of going on a word-for-word, they went on a phrase-by-phrase, or a thought-by-thought, in an effort to create a more readable translation. This same general philosophy was used for the NLT, the New Living Translation, which came out in 1996. However, in this case, the translators used Kenneth Taylor's Living Bible as a starting point and tried to retain its popular style. The ESV, English Standard Version, however, is very different. It's much more literal and is based off of the old, the old RSV, basically. It's a conservative alternative to the new liberal NRSV. Now, also jump in here, and this wouldn't be typically a Bible that a 
Protestant or Christian, whatever, would be reading, although it is very interesting. The JPS, standing for the Jewish Publication Society, being a Jewish Bible, this translation only includes the Old Testament. Interesting, though, the original JPS, published in 1917, was based on the American Standard Version, which is obviously the Christian translation. However, the new JPS, or the NJPS, published in 1985, is not based on any previous work. It was created from scratch by a team of Jewish scholars, representing all three of the main branches of Judaism, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Then there's a New King James Version. Unlike all the other new translations, it is not based on critical text of the New Testament. Like the Old King James, it is based on the Textus Receptus. For this reason, it is often preferred by Eastern Christians. For example, it is a translation used for the Greek Orthodox Study Bible. There is also another Catholic Bible called the Catholic Douay-Rheims Bible, and that is 240 years old. A much more recent Catholic translation is the NAB, or New American Bible, published in 1978. Be careful not to confuse it with the NASB. The NAB is the only English Bible authorized by the Catholic Church in the U.S. to be read during Mass. However, in 2011, it was updated as the NAB Revised Edition, or NABRE. That one has yet to be authorized during Mass, but is recommended by the Catholic Church for personal use. Finally, there's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, now updated and known simply as the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. And we'll probably look into some of these a little bit more as we go into other podcasts, but I also want to talk about some out there that are more recent, current Bibles that are being used that I wouldn't recommend because they don't follow the original text, and we will explain a whole lot of problems that they are. But one of the ones that we're going to be touching on is called the Passion Bible, and there's others. We're going to go through some of these and break them down. But today, I just wanted to give a basic foundation of the various translations and how they came into place, how we got them. Well, that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you for your continued support when you listen to these podcasts. I know a lot of us live busy lives, and the fact that you spend some of it with me, I am truly grateful, and I appreciate it. So thank you for spending some time with me. Until next time, God bless you.